0: Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a very special guest, Mr. Russ Eagle, who tells us the truth about the Mount Whitney Expedition.
1: You've heard that name before, Russ and I climbed mountains in Idaho on the Lewis Park Trail, but also we have now for the second time with a friend of ours named Joe Lovell climbed Mount Whitney, the highest point in the lower 48 states.
0: We talked with Russ and you, sir, about about that trip up Mount Whitney. Also about Lewis and Clark and John Steinbeck.
1: Yes, we first of all mentioned Whitney and realized that Thomas Jefferson as a rational man would not climb such a mountain. But he would have liked Steinbeck's work, I think. And it's a pity that uh, Jefferson's agrarian dream miscarried so profoundly during the middle of the 20th century. And here we go again with robotics and artificial intelligence. Please
0: join us for all that and more with special guest Russ Eagle on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson. And good to see you, Mr. Jefferson.
1: Good day to you, citizen.
0: Mr. Jefferson, our current president started, came into office with a fairly high approval rating. Uh, it has since dropped since he took office many months ago, and I don't know if it's of a, a concern to him. Um, it would seem that in the pursuit of what he believes are good policies for our nation, he has left some people behind who think maybe his ideas aren't so good. Now, I, I know you had opposition to your policies. How did you handle that when people disapproved? I lived
1: in an easier time because there weren't polls and there was no media to speak of. The newspapers were very few and occasional. People did not have access to national news. They didn't really know what was happening with their president or even with their Congress. They might not have known what was happening in their state legislature. That distance and the silence that this uh, caused made it impossible for people to have sudden uh, reactions to policy or to really even follow the the ups and downs of a president's uh, decisions and policies. It was, I think, a better time in that respect because you don't want to govern the country with an eye and an ear to all of the most immediate reactions of the people. The people are not always well-informed. They're at a considerable distance from the centers of power. You don't want to govern by plebiscite. At the same time, the people have this tool. So if they don't like what your current president is doing, the next quadrennial election, as I understand it, is just a little over two years from now, and they will have the opportunity to retire that president. That's a vote of confidence or no confidence, whether he gets a second term or only one. And if they find his behavior to be in violation of the constitutional norms, they can impeach him. I know you've never had a successful impeachment In American history, but it is a tool that James Madison and the Founding Fathers embedded into the Constitution because they felt that maybe the next election might be so far off that the crisis might occur in the beginning or middle of a president's term that it might be necessary to get rid of him sooner than that. So there are tools uh, that the American people have to express their discontentment with any of their public officers.
0: Granted, however, sir, a president is a president. When you were president, sir, you had policies that the Federalists thought would ruin the country, and I know you received some very negative press about that. Now, I don't know if our current situation is as serious as that, perhaps more serious, but would you encourage a president to stick to his path and do what he believes is right? Isn't that what you did, sir?
1: Well I was lucky I had a, a friendly congress both houses of congress were of my party the earliest republican party in the country and I had solid majorities and particularly after 184 when I was resoundingly reelected into a second term so I didn't face quite the same issues that more modern presidents seem to be facing but the federalists were unendingly critical of what I did no matter what I did and they did it merely as sport it wasn't really about earnest policy preferences or philosophies of government. It was really just power politics. I think this is inevitable, unfortunately. Uh, However degrading it is or dispiriting it is to me personally, I realized that this was the nature of all civil societies, that there will be factions and that one will demonize the other and mischaracterize the other's um, activities and decisions and and policies and, and even just existence.
0: Finally, Mr. Jefferson, is it a president's duty to listen to the people and do what they think is right? Or is it the duty of a president to follow what he knows in his heart to be the correct path?
1: Sometimes it's the one and sometimes it's the other. I think that we must always acquiesce, even cheerfully, to the decided will of the American people. If that will is known, and it's counter to my own views, I must either side with it and do what the people have asked me as their representative to do, or if I will not do that, if I say I can't follow the will of the people in this case, I must then throw myself on their mercy and say at the next election, you are certainly entitled to uh, retire me, and, and including in shame, um, if, if you feel strongly that I have misrepresented you. Thank
0: you very much, Mr. Jefferson.
1: You are welcome, sir.
0: Hey, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. This week, we are joined by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. And Clay, you have a special guest here, someone you know very well and have had many adventures with. Uh, I'm going to leave it to you
1: to introduce him, sir. Well, welcome everyone. And this is a special edition of The Jefferson Hour. We're going to talk a little bit about John Steinbeck and a little bit about Mount Whitney and a little bit about Stephen Ambrose's great and famous book, Undaunted Courage, which is now 25 years old. So welcome to all of you. My guest, our guest, David, is uh, Russ Eagle, who's been on this program before, has hosted the program uh, once or twice in the past. And Russ and I and another fellow by the name of Joe Lovell climbed Mount Whitney on August 25th, and we had lots of conversations, and we talked about John Steinbeck, and Russ is working on a really important John Steinbeck project, and now I'm working on one myself. So I thought we could talk about all of that. But first, welcome to Russ Eagle. I believe you're in Carolina today. That is correct. Now, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that one of the members of the Lewis and Clark crew was a North Carolinian.
2: Uh, Yes, that would be Corporal Warfington who I guess is most famous for bringing the keelboat back from Fort Mandan.
1: Right. So they came up from St. Louis in the spring and summer of of 1804, and the keelboat drew more than three feet of water. It was 55 feet in length. They knew they weren't going to be able to take it all the way to the source of the Missouri, and they sent it back on April 7th, 1805 with specimens and artifacts and some live animals, reports, letters, uh, several discharged men, things they realized they would no longer need. And that was a pretty serious mission, Russ, because they had had this period of tension with the Lakota near Pierce, South Dakota. And Lewis was afraid, I just reread this uh, yesterday, he was afraid that Warfington and the keelboat would be fired upon by the Lakota.
2: Yes. And I think that's one of the discussions we had recently. I think that's one of the big missing pieces of the story, because I don't think we know a whole lot about, we know they made it back. We know the things they sent, made it to Jefferson, but we know almost nothing about the adventure that they had. As for Corporal Warfington, I can tell you that's about all we know about his life. There are some local scholars who have done a lot of research and have been able to turn up nothing on Warfington other than his birthplace. It was
1: an important command that he got, so there must have been a high level of trust. He was somebody they did not need for the second year or the third year of their journey. But to make him the commander of the keelboat with all that precious cargo, this wasn't just discharged men and sending the boat down the river, they had to have great respect for him. And it's a pity that we don't know more about him. He didn't keep a journal. No one appears to have kept a journal. We don't uh, really know 10 sentences about what happened on that long 1,610-mile ride back down to St. Louis, except that, so far as we can tell, they had no difficulties with the Teton, Lakota, or, or anybody else. But you you Carolinians take some pride in having one of the members of the expedition, don't you?
2: Well, certainly there are some that do. And uh... With the help of the uh, foundation, some some really nice signage has been erected at, at Corporal Warfington's birthplace, which is in eastern North Carolina. So, you know, everybody's got to grab for their little piece of the story.
1: One of these days, I will venture there, but it won't be high on my list. The new issue of We Proceeded On, which I'm just editing today, actually just finishing up, is going to be all about the late Stephen Ambrose. And it's the 25th anniversary of Undaunted Courage, which is not just about Uh, the expedition. In fact, let me read the subtitle of the book, Undaunted Courage, Meriwether Lewis, Thomas Jefferson, and the Opening of the American West, published in 1996. So Jefferson is a huge figure in this, particularly in the first 150 pages. So this is an important book. It's still the most readable, most accessible, most often read introduction to Lewis and Clark, David Swenson, you've worked on Lewis and Clark. You had some connections with Ken Burns' film, but you also, I believe, had some time with Steve.
0: Right. We were fortunate and uh, got to meet Dayton Duncan and Ken Burns here at our studio. They had chosen to use some Native American music that we've recorded on our label, and it ended up in the film, which we were very proud of. We had this delightful evening at the studio after the premiere of the film here in Bismarck with Dayton Duncan and Ken Burns. And then we were invited to join them on their premiere from here to the coast. They uh, showed the film. There a, I, I remember being near Idaho and it was uh, at an outdoor drive-in theater that they sort of set up that they they showed the film. and
1: yeah, I was there with you. I didn't know that you were there. We
0: didn't know each other. Ambrose really had a magnetic personality don't you think he was a lot of people called him the coach let's go let's get this done and um but he he had quite a
1: personality you had some time some interactions with him on that On that journey, how you went to all these venues across the West? I
0: did. I actually um, drove from Bismarck all the way to the coast and recorded sound effects in locations that they had been. Recorded Native American singers in locations that they had been. Recorded a fiddler out in the woods and in the mountains of Montana and hiked up some of the trails that existed there. So it was it was a great time. It was a long time ago, but
1: I remember it well. Uh, Indeed, now Russ, I don't. Think you met Steve? I did not know. But you have, um, partly at my suggestion, I think, reread Undaunted Courage over the past few weeks, and I'm just um, interested in in your reaction. You know, it's been for me, literally 25 years since I read it through. I've read parts of it dozens of times, but I've never read it through. I just did. Um, what was your reaction?
2: Well, I missed the bicentennial in the sense that I was not into the Lewis and Clark story at that time. So, so I, uh, you know, I realized it was a very timely book and the role that it played in the Bicentennial, um, you know, but but not necessarily for me. I had read a lot of other works by the time I read it. So to me, it reads more like a, an adventure story for, for young boys, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I don't like the fact that it sort of uh, uh, skips over. Uh, really to me, it skips over the the whole last half of the journey, which I think is the most fascinating part for me. Um, I think there's a great book to be written about um, the trip home and I know you touched on it on in your book quite a bit actually, how you know you had five or six groups um, going different places and so um, but you know for what, Undaunted uh, Courage reads to me more like a novel than than history, but um, having said that, you know, I do have a great deal of appreciation for what it was and the role it played. And really, the you know, I know it's waning somewhat as the bicentennial um, slips away, but, you know, still there's a huge interest in Lewis and Clark across the country. Um, in fact, you know, we've experienced a lot of that this summer, and uh, I think we owe a lot of that to Stephen Ambrose.
0: I think you really categorized it spot on, Clay. I mean, it it became the introduction for so many Americans to this great, great story. Um, and uh, I, I am one of those uh, for certain. Yeah, I
1: reread it. I have a slightly more positive view of it than I think Russ does. I know Russ admires it. Um, but it holds up really well. You know, I marked my copy this time with hundreds of underlinings and little notations and I'd put yes or excellent or no, or disagree, or, you know, quibbled with um, Ambrose uh, on a number of occasions, but. Uh, oh, well, it has held up and it certainly is the portal to Lewis and Clark for most people. It sold more than 2 million copies worldwide. It was published in a number of languages. And I, I say in this little essay that I've written for the, opening of the we proceeded on by by the way people should subscribe they can easily do so by going to the lewis and clark trail heritage foundation website in great falls montana you subscribe and become a member and you get four issues of we proceeded on per annum among other things and so i urge people to do that but in the little essay i wrote to introduce this this uh, the celebration issue um i said that it was true that between around 1998 and 2010. I, I suppose I flew 100 or 150 flight segments per year. I almost never got on an airplane where I didn't see somebody reading Undaunted Courage. People ask about what's the first what's what's the first book I should read about Lewis and Clark, and I will I won't even ask Russ to answer that question here in a minute. But for me, I can't think of a better way for people unless they want to read the journals. There's now a one volume edition of the journals by the great editor Gary Moulton, and there's a one-volume paraphrase day by day by Gary Moulton, but unless you want to go to the raw documents themselves, I'm hard-pressed to name a better introductory book. It's not the last book you should read by far, but it seems to me it's almost inevitably the first one. What do you think, Russ?
2: Oh, definitely. It's a great
1: introduction. As
2: for me, I came to um, Lewis and Clark through Jefferson and I discovered your work through Jefferson, but I happened to um, come across the Jefferson Hour at the time you were finishing up your Lewis book. So um, that's what got me into Lewis and Clark, and that happened to be the first book that I read. And David Nicandry's was the second book, which, you know, I've always um you know, at some of the um, retreats we've been on, I've always sort of expressed the idea that I look at those as sort of bookends. You know, they're totally different books, but they take the same perspective. But um, but they're not introductory type books. Um, they're for serious scholars. So I do think, yeah, there's no better introductory book than than Undaunted Courage.
1: But something you said a minute ago, Russ, really struck me. That you know, the one of the disappointments of Undaunted Courage is that he's masterful in getting them to the Pacific, but then he he sort of wraps it up quickly and gets them back to St. Louis and, and on to uh, Monticello and and Louisville and so on. Uh, that's a weakness of most one-volume accounts of Lewis and Clark. And I think that in some sense um, inspired our friend David Nicandri to write his book, because his book is about Lewis and Clark on the Columbia, with a particular emphasis on the return when Lewis, in his mind, was having a kind of a slow motion nervous breakdown David I think we need to take a break and when we come back I would like to turn our attention uh, not uh, any longer to uh, Stephen Ambrose on the 25th anniversary of his extraordinary publication made him a very rich man and made him the most sought after speaker during the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial unfortunately he died uh, in 2002 before he could really enjoy the accolades that he richly deserved but when we come back I want to quickly ask Russ about our um ascent of Mount Whitney. You know, there's been a lot of grumbling from Russ about the way I've characterized these trips in the past. Now we have the man himself. He can speak and uh, and tell it in his own way. But you're listening to a special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Our guest is one of my dearest friends, Russ Eagle of North Carolina. When we come back, we will talk about John Steinbeck. But first, the ascent of Mount Whitney. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
0: Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We are so pleased to welcome Russ Eagle as our special guest this week, and uh, I know you want to talk about Steinbeck. I would be shocked if the two of you had a conversation that didn't include Steinbeck. But before we go there, I I think we need to know the truth about Mount Whitney and what really happened, and I'm addressing that question to you, Russ.
2: Well, there have been two ascents of Mount Whitney over the past four years. This most recent time, I was, you know, I did learn by my mistakes. I took a witness with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow, you know, after after Clay's descriptions of our first trip to Mount Whitney, which was, I think, was in 2017, you know, I did comment to people that, you know, I'd al- always known he was. He wrote great. Um, books on history and the humanities, but I didn't know that he was had uh, such abilities with fiction. Clay can speak for himself, but for me, the most recent trip was much easier than the first time. The first time nearly killed both of us. I think.
0: Well, we're sort of assuming that people know about Mount Whitney, where it is, how high it is, how difficult of a climb is it? A climb? Is it a hike? Can you give us a little background?
2: Mount Whitney is in the Southern Sierra Nevada. To get there, to get to the trailhead, which is in a little town called Lone Pine, California, in the Owens Valley, um, we we met in Las Vegas and drove through Death Valley, three or four hour drive, I think. Uh, Mount Whitney is the highest peak in the lower 48. It is 14,508 feet, I think, 14,508 or 14,505, you hear both, which is just a few feet higher than a number of other mountains like mount rainier several others it's it's a you know it took modern times and modern technology before i think they could officially establish that mount Whitney was the tallest but you can get to the summit with no technical climbing abilities it's a hike the first time we did this it was actually clay's idea and and i can remember his words to me there's nothing to it guys like us do it every day (laughs) the first time we did it um We camped at 12,000 feet and about 17-degree temperatures and 25-mile-an-hour winds. We were not suffering from altitude sickness, but we were suffering from the effects of altitude. And we only had a two-day permit, so we were were pushed. Um, We had to go 17 miles on the last day to be up and down before our permit expired. So that's another thing. Um, On the second time, we had a three-day permit. So... um,
0: This is part of the Sequoia National Park, isn't it?
2: Yes. Along the trail, you enter the Sequoia National Park. The John Muir Trail joins the um, Whitney Porter Trail about two miles from the summit. So uh, um, a lot of things coming together, the Inyo National Forest. But it's it's a neat place to visit.
0: And of course, we're all concerned about uh, the Sequoias uh, with all the wildfires. You didn't encounter any fires while you were there, I take it.
2: We did not see any fires, but we saw lots of smoke. Um, the first year we went in 2017, I took this great photograph from uh, from down in Lone Pine of of Mount Whitney, which I have printed in on my wall. But when we arrived this time, standing in the same spot, we could not even see Mount Whitney. Every day, you would wake up on a clear morning, but the smoke would settle in. And then when we reached the summit, you could see um, in the distance um, where the smoke was coming from. So um,
0: you call it a, a hike that anybody can make, but if you get on the National Park Service websites and look, I mean, it's the photographs of it make it look like a pretty daunting hike. What do you say, Clay?
1: Yes, it's, it is very daunting. We did it in 2017, and it was uh, it was rough. Um, I had cramps at 12,000 feet that were the worst cramps I've ever had, and I thought I was actually going to have to decline the last day. You begin the the second day, you go up to 12,000 and camp, and then the next morning, you go to the finish and back, and it, the first part of that hike is 99 switchbacks, which are essentially 99 switchbacks straight up the face of the mountain. It's a, it's a daunting thing to see at first light on the day you're going to ascend. We made it. Uh, Russ did better than I did um, by by a considerable margin. So then we came back and said, on the way down, we said never, ever, ever, ever again. But we decided to do it again, and we roped our friend Joe Lovell into coming along. For a long backstory to that, but this second time, I am—I'm the living witness of the of the importance of the word hubris. I trained a little this time, which I didn't do last time, but not enough. And this time really humbled me in a in a big way. And I—I I made it. Uh, we all three made it. But I suffered almost every step of the way. I should say, though, for his, the historical record, that I had uh, really terrible problems with my left leg, and um, I have a vague memory of a kind of a Tanya Harding event on the first night, where Russ was seen with a golf club outside my tent. I don't know if that's true, but I could barely walk, and they and Russ had trained like a, a Olympian, and so he was scampering up the trail and sneering all the time, and Joe Lovell was. He was a little less well-prepared than Russ, but he was you know, chugging up the trail and, and looking back at me with pity and remorse. And I was crawling up the trail on all, I had sticks, so I had really six legs. I was crawling up the trail and wishing I were dead, and we made it. Then, then we got down, David. Two days, was it, Russ, later they closed the mountain because of the fires. And I thought, timing is everything. Why couldn't they have closed it a little sooner, for goodness <laughs> sakes? So this time when I came down, I said, in a much simpler way, Never again. How about you, Russ? Oh, certainly never
2: again. But, you know, I had a, a fairly painless experience this time. I don't I don't think you're giving yourself plenty of credit, but I think the one area where you don't give yourself enough credit is, you know, that first time in 2017, you decided to try to do it with Edmund Hillary gear, early 20th century. I have pictures of this, um, if you're interested, David, but, you know, Clay was probably carrying 60 pounds of
1: wool and flannel. and I had the world's largest loaf of bread, David, from Schatz's Bakery in Bishop, California. I did it as a, as a gift to my friend Russ. I stopped and bought it. It was like a seven-pound loaf of bread, and I, we carried it all the way up and all the way back, and I put my pack in the garage, and a year and a half later, I found petrified um, bread.
0: You know, you can get online and find many, many photographs of Mount Whitney, and you know, to me, you're joking about it, but it looks like it's a pretty strenuous hike. And once you get to the top of of Mount Whitney, it's like very old, broken down mountain. You must have felt right at home.
1: I did. I mean, I, I got to the top. We got to the top. I was actually, I know it sounds crazy. I was slightly better off this year when I got to the top in spite of all the pain, because you know what you're up against. The second time, you know how much more there is, how much more difficult it gets how much more time is going to be required and it makes a huge difference but when i got to the top i lay down for a while and tried to die and only when they prodded me with their hiking sticks did i slowly like a like a snake in october return to life in some sense and going down is for me is a piece of cake my knees hold up on the down but the up was truly horrific. And, and I, I take some solace, some tiny little solace in the in the statistic that 30,000 people start this hike and only 10,000 complete it per annum. And so Russ and I have done it twice. I don't want to push our luck anymore. But even now, Russ, now that weeks have passed, I feel a little happier about the trip because I realized, well, okay, but well, we did it. You have to wonder at about thirteen five when you still have a full mile up why any rational person would do this
0: i would take you up on your offer of sharing photographs russ i'm i'm hoping that you have some of uh, clay and his 60 pounds of gear and giant loaf of bread that we can share on the website
2: i do and you know all the way up the mountain everybody that we passed every other <laughs> hiker would look at clay's what have you got in that pack how many pounds <laughs> are you carrying there
1: that's not what they said they said, how much you got in that pack, old man? They had two concerns. One was the 60-pound pack, although it paid off in some really surprising ways. Um, but the other thing they thought was, if I were your age and in your condition, I'd have a guide. I'd have a Sherpa haul on that crap. And so they were sneering at me for other reasons. But be that as it may, we did it. And it is, it is always good to test yourself in this way. And I know that I know something I didn't know before, that you have to train hard. Russ trained hard. I didn't train hard. You know, I did a few 12-mile hikes, and I did a few stairs, and I rode my exercise bike, and I thought, that should be enough. It's not, is it, Russ?
2: Oh, no, it's not. And uh, for me, at least, it's got to be long-term. I'd been working for that for six months, not every day, but certainly I knew um and we do the uh, the Windover hike in July, so that's always a good a good time to see where you are and how hard you need to work between now and then.
0: Safe to say that this isn't going to turn into an annual cultural tour for the Jefferson Hour. Uh, what about Jefferson? Uh, would would he have ever? I mean, obviously he didn't travel. But say there was a way to whisk him out there, is this something he would have done?
1: Yes, because first of all, he would have said, he wouldn't have done it. Nothing would have made Jefferson do it. But he would have brought a theodolite and a compass and surveying equipment, and he would have measured the height of the mountain from a base camp somewhere. And he would have sent Meriwether Lewis up or somebody else up on his behalf. Jefferson's not going to do such a thing. But he would be thrilled because then he would say to Europe, hey, talk about your Matterhorn, talk about your Mont Blanc, talk about the Alps. We have mountains in this country that dwarf yours. And he was always eager to vindicate America against the the views of Europeans. So he'd be thrilled. And I think he would also be thrilled by California, which sort of leads us into the the second half of our discussion, David, unless you you want to shame either one of us. Well,
0: Jefferson would be impressed that gentlemen of your age would even attempt such a thing, don't you think? I guess I could put myself in that same category of your age, but Jefferson was outdoorsy. Um, You know, I, in spite of the fact that he was a homebody, you know, I, he 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 hiked the woods and, and rode every day. day. Don't you, you don't think he would physically attempt something like this?
1: I do not. I do not. I think that he would have looked up. I mean, it's the very definition of the sublime. So all joking aside, when you're at Lone Pine, and you look up at that mountain, and there are about seven of them, it's kind of hard to know which one is which, but when you look up at that front, the front of the Sierra, it takes your breath away. It's one of the most beautiful sights in America, but you are immediately aware of the sublime, and the sublime was that concept that the 18th century loved of being overwhelmed. When you look up from the parking lot at the interpretive center down in the base at Lone Pine, you think, this is going to be really, really difficult. And the, the the drama of the thing, it's one of the most dramatic mountain faces. It's much more dramatic than Pike's Peak. I think it's more dramatic than Mount Rainier. And you see it and you think, well, it can't be done. I mean, you, you, first of all, you think it just can't be done. Or if it's if it can be done, it's just got to be an ordeal. Uh, but you, you're just stunned by the mass of this thing. Well, fortunately, you get to drive a long way to the, to the put in point. So if you had to walk from Lone Pine, um, most people would turn back before they ever got to the the parking lot. But Russ, weren't you telling me as we drove through death Valley at that point, I was wanting to slow down to 20. So I could just roll out and die right there, but they wouldn't stop. Didn't you tell me there are people that run from death Valley all the way to the base of the mountain and then up it in, in a single run?
2: Yes. There's an annual race that I think it starts at death Valley at the lowest point in the lower 48 and then, um, goes up Mount Whitney. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they are surprisingly close together, but I mean, this is still a, I don't know, a hundred mile race or something, or run. Mm-hmm. Have you, have you so signed up? It, no. Um,
0: well, let's move on to Steinbeck and the connection with all of this. Uh, I, I know you're, you're anxious to talk about Steinbeck and when it comes to the two of you, uh, I shall be quiet and listen about Steinbeck.
1: Well, let me introduce this by in a couple of ways, David. This is the Thomas Jefferson Hour, so we want to make sure we're talking um, about Thomas Jefferson, and that's certainly the case with Lewis and Clark and with mountain climbing. Um, there are connections with Steinbeck, and we'll go into that in a minute. But I want to say that, and I want to be, it's going to sound a little bit emotional, but you know, you go through life, And there there are very few people you can talk with about the things that matter most to you. Um, Turns out that that's just the nature of things. Um, And so David Nicandri and I call this the Republic of Letters, which is kind of a pretentious phrase from Jefferson's world, but all these sort of like-minded people found each other around the country and around the world, and they've corresponded and exchanged ideas and so on. Well, I have a little Republic of Letters. You're both in it. David Nicandri is in it. But Russ and I have discovered a mutual love of John Steinbeck. I think his love might be greater than mine, but it's, it's, it's big on both sides. And we have slightly different ways of looking at Steinbeck and, and different choices of the best work of Steinbeck. But I've, as I think some people know, I perform as Steinbeck. Um, and so Russ, a few years ago, who's been a lover of Steinbeck for decades, uh, told me that he's writing a book about one of Steinbeck's novels, a novella called Cannery Row. And that just thrills me to think that, um, you know, one of my closest friends is working on a book that he doesn't need to write. He's not trying to get tenure. Uh, it's not going to give him a greater pay. He's retired. Um, you know, a book is is a book is like Mount Whitney, only it goes on for a couple of years, just hard, 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 hard work. Um, and here we go. And so the book is well underway, and, and I'm going to have Russ characterize it. But That has led me, in turn, to ask myself, well, if I were going to write a book about Steinbeck, what book would that be? And now I've formulated one, and Russ has given me the go-ahead. I'm not trampling on any of his um, Steinbeckian territory here. And so both of us are now actively working on Steinbeck books, and uh, we'll be leading the Steinbeck tour uh, in Monterey. Uh, in the spring, in March, and so people can come, but we're each going to give a presentation based upon the research that we're doing. So um, that's one of the Jefferson Hour tours. We've done it twice before. It's, it's it's extraordinary because we're in Steinbeck country, talking in the morning about Steinbeck's books, and then in the afternoon going on these unbelievable excursions to some of the most beautiful places in America, all with a Steinbeck signature. So Russ, quickly tell us how long you've been at your love of Steinbeck and and how this project uh, came to your mind.
2: First, um, if you don't mind, uh, just uh, if I could offer a Steinbeck quote that sort of emphasizes what you said there about your Republic of Letters. Um, this was a letter that Steinbeck wrote to Peter Benchley, of all people, the author of Jaws, when he was a 16-year-old Steinbeck uh just happened to be his landlord. That's a long story that's not worth telling here, but Steinbeck said to him, a writer out of loneliness is trying to communicate like a distant star sending signals. He isn't telling or teaching or ordering. Rather, he seeks to establish a relationship of meaning, of feeling, of observing. We are lonesome animals. We spend all life trying to be less lonesome, one of our ancient methods is to tell a story, begging the listener, and to say and to feel, yes, that's the way it is, or at least that's the way I feel. You're not as alone as you thought.
1: That's great. I want you to reread a couple of sentences of it after we take a short break here. We're in a special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. David Swenson is here at Makoche Studios. I'm across town in my own uh, New Enlightenment Radio Network home studio. And Russ Eagle is in Salisbury, North Carolina today. The miracle that Jefferson would not be able to understand that three people spread across a continent can not only talk to each other, uh, but watch each other talk. It's absolutely magical from a Jeffersonian point of view. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'm going to ask Russ to reread the first two sentences of that extraordinary Steinbeck quote, and then we'll hear more about his project.
0: And when we return... I would like to get the both of you to perhaps share some more information about Mr. Steinbeck, perhaps a a short biography of sorts on the off chance that there are some listeners who don't know much about him.
1: Would that be possible, sir? Yes. The question is whether we can do it briefly.
0: Well, briefly or not, I would like to hear it. And also, uh, I know you have an upcoming cultural tour involving John Steinbeck, And I think it would be appropriate for you to share some information about that with our listeners. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas
3: Jefferson Hour.
2: Welcome back to the Thomas
0: Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation about all things Jefferson this week with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and our special guest, Russ Eagle, the one who tells the truth about Mount Whitney. And we're so glad you do. Uh,
1: The truth as he sees it, of course.
0: Of course. We, we've been talking most recently about John Steinbeck, and I asked before we took the break, I was, I was kind of hoping that the two of you might provide some sort of a, a biography or put Steinbeck in his proper place for, for listeners who don't know much about him.
1: Yeah, Let me start by pretending I am Steinbeck. Here's what he would say. Uh, I was born in California. I wrote a bunch of books. You can find them almost in any library. If you want to read them, please do. There isn't much about me that you really need to know. Go ahead, Russ. That is the
2: truth. In fact, in my own project, that's sort of uh, one of the the first half of of my book. Uh, you know, would really tick Steinbeck off because it's it's looking at the backstory, and he felt that had nothing to do with what was between the covers of the book. If you couldn't get what he was saying there, then he just weren't going to get it, was his contention. And he was not posing in this stance. Uh, in about 1935, he had been writing for six years and had made less than $800. And covici Freed offered to um, print Tortilla Flat, which would go on to be his first best-selling book. And they asked for a photo and some biographical information. And Steinbeck said, well, if you need all of that, let's just forget it. He said, I, I can't deal with that. I can't write books if people know who I am.
0: Okay, so we're going to go flat on the biography bit. How about... No, but let's, let's quickly do it. He
1: was born in, in California. He went to Stanford briefly, never graduated. He had great literary interests from childhood, remembering his the, when he first learned the words rhyme, when he first read the Thousand and One Arabian Nights, when he first read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, when he first read the Arthurian Cycle, of Arthur and the round table and his, his nights. And these got into his soul early and he knew he wanted to be a writer. And he wrote a lot of things that didn't succeed until tortilla flats. Was that 1934? 35. I think suddenly he's a, a a considerable national figure, but just beginning. And then he wrote of mice and men, which was just kind of rocked America and became a famous Broadway play and a film, a great film. Uh, And then of course, Russ, um, he became interested in the the plight of the Okies, which brings Jefferson in. Right. Well, I think uh, of mice and men even
2: um, brought Jefferson in. Steinbeck grew up in sort of the Jeffersonian world of the, the small farmers. Jefferson was was big um, into. Um, he tried to sort of revamp uh, the system of land distribution in Virginia. I know early in his career, and of mice and men and the grapes of wrath are just full of references and little speeches from characters about how important the ownership of land was to, to a man's life and dignity. But one of the reasons Steinbeck is so misunderstood, I think, is because he made his reputation in that time and everybody assumed he was you know, the pro-labor, proletarian voice of the Depression. And, and that's not really how Steinbeck would have defined himself. But that's what was going on in his world at the time. You know, his his views came from experience rather than ideology. So he went out and spent time with the Okies and his wife at the time said he fell in love with them. And that's where those projects came from. Um, you know, World War II came along and that crisis passed. And, you know, the country moved on and Steinbeck moved on. But so much of his readership was looking for, you know, the sequel to The Grapes of Wrath. Steinbeck had this Fear of repeating himself, he would not
1: do anything that he considered, you know, doing the same thing twice. The Grapes of Wrath, as I think everyone knows, is about displaced family farmers. That the family farmers of Texas and Arkansas and Oklahoma and Nebraska, Kansas, the Dakotas, Eastern Montana, they were displaced by this perfect storm of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. The Dust Bowl was one of the worst man made environmental disasters in human history, and it really dumped tens of thousands of people um, to the West Coast because they, they were foreclosed upon and their land could no longer produce anything. And, and, and the, 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 the title, The Grapes of Wrath, uh, is about the, um, the moral outrage of growers destroying food rather than feeding these poor Okies. And they're treating the Okies as if they were aliens who had no rights, who were not American citizens, who, who did not deserve even minimal dignity and comfort, and when Steinbeck saw all this in the Central Valley, and saw the way the great growers were treating these these helpless refugees, it angered him. And, and but he managed to control that anger and produce one of the world's great books, *The Grapes of Wrath*. So it's very Jeffersonian, and there are Jeffersonian characters in the book. And I think Jefferson would be fascinated by this. And it's it's happening a little bit again today this displacement by ai and robotics but but to go back to your work russ it's not on the grapes of wrath i know you love that book your work is on cannery row so quickly tell us what cannery row is and and what you're doing with it well after the grapes of wrath as you know that the um, hullabaloo and the controversy
2: that followed just you know steinbeck did become a public figure did become rich and famous and you know it nearly killed him it destroyed his marriage um it drove him out of California. It drove him away from the novel. Oddly enough, you know, a travelogue, half travelogue, half scientific catalog, uh, nonfiction that he co-wrote with his friend Ed Ricketts, Sea of Cortez, which is another fascinating book, but certainly not what you would expect to follow the Grapes of Wrath. Um, unfortunately, the day after it was published, um, Pearl Harbor happened. And so nobody really read or reviewed Sea of Cortez. Then Steinbeck threw himself into the war effort. He was a very patriotic man, but if you take the war work out of the discussion, because that's a that's a whole another discussion, um, the next book was Cannery Row. It's a short book. It's an odd book. In fact, um, Steinbeck's biographer Jackson Benson actually made the comment that re- it reminded him of a Jefferson for- favorite, Tristram Shandy in the sense that nothing happens in the book. It's just, you know, a series of episodes. And the reviews, uh, needless to say, were, you know, this is what you followed the Grapes of Wrath with, you know, this this story about uh, bums and prostitutes on the Monterey waterfront. And so, I don't know, I don't really look at my book as a defense, but more as a celebration. There's a lot in that book, you just have to unpack it. Um, A lot of uh, Steinbeck's um, themes that, you know, this book actually fits in perfectly with the with the work that preceded it. And um, in fact, Grapes of Wrath and uh, C.F. Cortez and Canary Row have really a neat relationship, I think, amongst Steinbeck's work. You know, there's certainly not any sort of trilogy, but there's certainly threads, that, thematic threads that, that connect these books together. So, you know, I just am hoping to explore those and maybe, you know, increase people's, the appreciation and the the joy they get out of reading that
1: book, because it's a fun book to read. My sense is that you're about a third of the way through this process. Um, You've written a number of chapters, the rest are outlined, you're doing active work and and writing uh, essentially every day. Um, So it'll be an exploration of this novella, which is about these sort of colorful 'er ne'er-do-wells, but at the center of it, there's a character much like his dear friend, um, and that character here is called Doc. Uh, I don't think it can be called his greatest book, but it's, for you, your favorite. Uh, when will you when will you have your book done, do you think? If I can stay home and work on it,
2: Clay, I've got to stop uh, hiking up these mountains for a while and stay home. Um,
1: you know, I'm hoping to finish it in 2022. And so it, the first half is sort of the backstory of how this novella came to be in 1946 and then the second half will be a reading will be an interpretive reading of Canary row right which i'm just getting into the
2: first half is you know the draft of the first half is more or less done you know the part that i'm looking forward to getting into is, is beginning right now so i am excited about it me
0: too i i look forward to that book you know as time slips away from us during this conversation there's a couple things that i would like to address if i might gentlemen Well, the first is, is I I really think you should uh, tell us a little bit more about the Steinbeck tour, what it's going, when it's going to be, where people can find out more about it and and what it encompasses.
1: Yeah, Russ will have the details, but let me start by saying there's an irony here, isn't there, Russ? Because you go to Monterey now and you see the place that was a smelly, working class fishing village in Steinbeck's time, It's now one of the great destination tour places in the United States. It's absolutely magnificent. The the great aquarium is there, which is one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. The restaurants are fabulous. The surrounding shorelines are um, amongst the most beautiful interactions of sea and land in the world. And so when you go there, it bears almost no resemblance to the shabby, smelly fishing town of Steinbeck's time. Uh, But Russ, you have details on the trip.
2: Right. The trip is in March. The dates are on the Jefferson Hour website. We're going to be at Asilomar Conference Grounds, which is right on the coast. You know, you can walk out your door to the tide pools that Steinbeck examined and wrote about in Cannery Row and a number of other books. Um, we uh, hike to the... Uh, Summit of Fremont's Peak. That's not a Mount Whitney type hike, but it's where Steinbeck um, sat when he wrote that poignant chapter at the end of Travels with Charlie, where he saw Steinbeck country for the last time. Um, we go to um, Point Lobos, which has been described as the greatest meeting of land and water in the world. It's where Steinbeck Steinbeck's family had his memorial service. It was a favorite place of his. Um, we have lunch at the house where Steinbeck was born and where he grew up. We go and see Rosinante, the truck that Steinbeck drove around the country and travels with Charlie, you
1: know, and, and a lot of other things. And just seeing Steinbeck country is is something to see. You know, we get we actually go to this interpretive center in Salinas, and there's Rosinante, the camper van. Back then, it was a big, crazy, new, innovative thing. And he drove Russ and I share a fascination with that book, that late book, "Travels with Charlie," which is sort of his farewell to America in some ways, but also his attempt to to re-engage with America after uh, spending so much time being a a famous man. Um, But that that pickup is there and the camper is there and you can peer inside through plexiglass and it just makes you want to get on the road yourself. Um, David, you read Steinbeck at some earlier point in your life, I feel certain.
0: Yeah, and that sort of leads me to my next uh, and final question, which is, you know, we all... um, are shaped to some degree by those that we read, particularly in our younger years. And both of you are avid Steinbeck readers. What is it about his writing? I ask both of you, what is it about his writing that has drawn you to his work and stayed with you throughout your lives?
2: Um, Well, Steinbeck has a lot in common, I think, with um, another of your favorites, Clay, uh, Thoreau he sees observing nature and being part of nature. He sees nature as, as a teacher, as your text. The The wise man in Steinbeck's books is um, sort of defined by his relationship to the natural world. And, and Steinbeck was as good as anybody about uh, describing and writing about the natural world. So I, that's certainly what, what drew me in initially.
1: For me, When I started to do Steinbeck, I kind of took on the character before I really knew what I was doing. I knew I loved The Grapes of Wrath. I knew that I loved Travels with Charlie. I knew that I loved Cannery Row and Of Mice and Men. Early in life, he realized that he's one of many people who have this realization, that there are only a handful of plots, a conflict between man and woman, conflict between man and man, conflict between man and society, conflict between man and God, um, the struggle for happiness, uh, jealousy, betrayal. Um, uh, hate, fear. that that, that Really, all stories are are, uh, are reweavings of a a very basic story stuff, and you can find that in the Bible and in the Arabian Nights as well as you could ever find it in Hemingway or Faulkner or Emily Dickinson, etc. And so that really fascinates me, and he's very programmatic. East of Eden is really the story of Cain and Abel told in several different ways, and Tortilla Flats is really Story of King Arthur and his knights, told in a very odd and fascinating way of mice and men. You know, based upon Robert Burns' poem, "The best laid plans of mice and men getting off to glay." That you know, the, what John Lennon said, "Life is what happens when you're when you're planning it." Um, those things really fascinate me, and that leads. I'll just quickly say what my project is. I'm working on a a book now on Steinbeck and. Um, The Mort d'Arthur by Sir Thomas Mallory, the Arthurian Cycle, and it's a long and fascinating story of a discovery that was made in in Winchester in England in the 1930s of the original manuscript of the Mort d'Arthur. Caxton printed a version of it. It was the first book printed in the English language, Um, and Steinbeck became utterly obsessed with this. He went to uh, Great Britain a number of times. In the 1950s, he met Eugene Ben who was the great um, Mallory scholar. A book has never been done on this connection, and so I'm doing that. So, Russ and I are taking on different projects. He's farther along than I am, but in the Steinbeck world, and they both fill holes, David. There's there's no adequate book on Cannery Row, and there's certainly no adequate book on, on the Arthurian cycle.
0: In the, If I might, one more question for the both of you in the, uh, the few moments that we have left. If you had to choose a Steinbeck book that you were going to give to Jefferson to read, what would it be and what would his reaction be?
1: Go ahead, Ross. I know, I know my answer.
2: Uh, it has to be the Grapes of Wrath. Now, you know, I don't know what his reaction would be, but I think, you know, if you read, I would just say uh, to listeners to read chapter 14, because I think Steinbeck's uh, point was the Jefferson's agrarian vision for this country is not enough in itself. That there have to be connections beyond that. and. I think I think that was
1: the, the major point of that book. Yeah, Jefferson, I agree 100%. Um, uh, the Grapes of Wrath, Jefferson would, I, I think, found it fascinating and, and, and really upsetting that good people, I mean, salt of the earth people, they're not intellectuals, they're not sculptors or artists, they're salt of the earth people, minding their own business, working the land, worshiping the God in their own way, are suddenly displaced by forces they can't understand, by mechanization that they didn't, help bring about by an environmental disaster that they played almost no role in perpetuating. And then they wind up in the promised land. I mean, still to this day, David, California is the promised land of America. They get there and it turns out to be a bitter, bitter disappointment because of the maldistribution of the fruits of life. And if Jefferson was on to anything, it was the maldistribution of the fruits of life. So it's a very Jeffersonian book. I think he would be shocked Uh, And it's also the most accessible great novel of the 20th century. Try reading Light in August or Joyce's Ulysses, then you read The Grapes of Wrath. It is accessible to an eighth grader and to somebody who spent her or his whole lifetime reading English literature. Russ, I can't thank you enough. We've only touched the beginning of this. We all wait for your book on the the cultural tour. I'm going to ask you to give a, a morning session on it and to read from the book. Uh, when it comes out, we'll have another session of the Jefferson hour it's, it's thrilling for me to think that you're doing this and and that you see the end in sight and and David, here's the fun of it. If he just would stick to doing it, he wouldn't leave me on these incredible adventures that wind up breaking my back and 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 postponing the publication of his of his authoritative book on on Cannery Row.
0: Much as I'd like to give Russ a chance to respond to that, I'm going to relieve him of that duty and say, gentlemen, we are out of time for the week.
1: Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour. We'll see you next week for another important edition of The Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas
3: Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727 This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.